It's all part of this complete imbalance between what the private sector is giving and getting. And if there's anything the last 40 or 50 years have shown us, it's that the balance of power has swung so wildly towards the the private sector. That's why we're having this backlash against globalization. That's why we're having the populism that we're seeing. The idea that a private company can come in and set the rules themselves, I just think that that's completely wrongheaded. Welcome to Big Tech, a podcast about the impact of technology on our economy, democracy, and society. I'm David Scott. And I'm Taylor Owen. Today, we're chatting with Rana Faruhar, a global business columnist and associate editor for the Financial Times and CNN's Global Economic Analyst. And she has a new book called Don't Be Evil, How Tech Betrayed Its Founding Principles and All of Us. Um, And in her book, Rana really um, takes on the big tech companies, the richest, most powerful companies in the world, and uh, details how she thinks they have their business models have gone awry, uh, the social and political implications of the product that they're producing, and really tries to make sense of this moment we're in, really the moment that this podcast is also trying to explore. The evolution of Rana's thinking of how tech companies were first businesses and then became these political, social, and economic powerhouses is something that was really influential for me when I was starting The Logic. Our publication is about all of these issues, and reading Rana's column in the FT during those early days was an incredibly formative part of developing our voice and who we were going to serve. Rana Faruhar joins us on the Big Tech Podcast, coming up. Welcome to the show, Rana. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start off with an anecdote that you begin your book with. Uh, You describe a moment in 2017 when you came home from work, opened your credit card bill. I'm curious if it was paper or digital uh, (laughs) and got a surprise. Uh, Can you tell us what happened? Um, Well, for my sins, I I do still get paper credit card bills. I hope that doesn't mark me as a Luddite, but um, I I like paper. Uh, And yeah, I came home and opened the bill and... I noticed a bunch of charges that I didn't recognize in very small increments, $1.99 here, $5 there. And I started looking down the bill, and there were a lot of them. So I sat down and tallied them all up, and it came to over $900. And I thought, oh, my God, I've been hacked. And then I looked more carefully, and they were all from the App Store. And I thought to myself, okay, who has my password? And I realized that my then 10-year-old son, Alex, had my password. So I went downstairs, and Alex was, um, as usual, on his phone. And I asked him if he knew anything about these charges. And he was sort of, what? Not me. And then I you know, kept drilling down. And finally, he said, oh, that. And I said, what do you mean? And he had apparently been playing a game, an online soccer game, and he'd almost sort of fallen into the game. You know, this is somebody that is very good generally at asking me about, can I buy this or that online? But it was clear to me as I began to kind of interview him that he didn't realize he was spending money in the course of this game. And so I don't know how much online gaming you do, but oftentimes you get these apps, they're free. But as you go through the game, you have to buy stuff 
stuff in order to play better, you know, get more points, have better opponents. And that's exactly what had happened to Alex. And as a mother, I was kind of horrified. But as a journalist, I was fascinated and I wanted to know more about this. And it was interesting because right around that time, I was just starting my job at the Financial Times as a columnist. And a man named Tristan Harris had come to see me. And Tristan was a serial entrepreneur. And he had been an ethics officer at Google, working with them um, in terms of making the technologies better for society or trying to. And during that time, he'd had kind of a come to Jesus moment about the business model of big tech, which is essentially attention capture. And I started talking to him, and it became very clear to me at that point that what had happened to Alex was not unique. In fact, much of what we were doing online was about attention capture and that there was an entire industry that was designed to use persuasive technologies to keep us online, harness our attention, monetize it. And that was basically the genesis of this book. So you mentioned Tristan's come to Jesus moment, and uh, I feel like a lot of people who have covered this space, either as journalists or as academics, have had an evolution in their thinking, right, of either reporting on only the economic upsides of the industry or overlooking some of the harms that were beginning to emerge and sort of populate the public discourse. And it feels like reading your work over the last number of years, you've also gone through that transition to a certain degree Mm. on how you view the scope and the scale and the complexity of the problem, not necessarily the upsides of this space. And can you talk a bit about how you feel that transition? Uh, That's very true. And I I think that that's natural because you start to go into this rabbit hole, and it is a rabbit hole. You very quickly discover, okay, there's an economic issue here. 80% of the value of corporate America is living in 10% of firms that are very data and IP rich, most of them the big tech platform firms or many of them. So that's an economic issue. You start to, in my case, as an economics and business columnist, look at the issues of monopoly, of innovation being squashed. There's all kinds of statistics looking at how the rise of big tech has coincided actually with a decline in entrepreneurial zeal, which sort of belies the myth of these companies as the great innovators. And then you start, of course, since 2016 in particular, looking at the politics, although the politics and and the way in which big tech has been used to manipulate election outcomes has been with us certainly since 2012, which was really the big turning point there, um, but is with us today. And this is, of course, a huge debate, not just in the U.S., but in in Canada and in the European Union and many other countries. How are we going to stop uh, disinformation, political disinformation from erosion? liberal democracy. But then, and this is the part that I think unifies almost everybody from privacy advocates to people who care about growth and innovation to soccer moms, it's personal. It's in our pockets. We are with it every day. I mean, I rode the subway here today to do this podcast with you, and literally everyone is looking down at their phones. That is a huge transition that has happened over the last decade, and it comes with all kinds of social ramifications. We'll definitely want to talk about all of that. But before we do, I'm wondering if we can go back to uh, the heyday of Silicon Valley uh, when you first arrived in the mid-90s and what it was like then. (laughs) I'm old. (laughs) Well, we can go back to mainframes and DARPA and everything else too if we want. (laughs) Oh, okay. You're really old now. (laughs) Um, But uh, what was it like uh, when you first arrived Mm. there in in the mid-90s and then thinking about how it is today? Well, it's, it was different. You know, I mean, one of the things my book does is it kind of tries to chart this arc of, 
utopia to dystopia that Silicon Valley has gone through in the last 20 years. And yeah, I was kind of a kid reporter back then in my mid-20s, going out to the Valley to meet these cool new companies like Yahoo. (laughs) Remember them? That was when everybody was excited to have a Yahoo mail address. And I remember going to parties and, you know, meeting these up-and-coming entrepreneurs who were just super excited to make the world a better place and everybody was going to get connected and it was going to be awesome. And it felt very idealistic. It felt um, much closer in some ways to those kind of hippie counterculture roots in the 1960s, which, just as a side note, I I was interested in the last few days to hear Mark Zuckerberg kind of reference the Fifth Estate, which harkens back to that counterculture 1960s hippie era. The industry is so far from that now. I mean, this is the idea of Facebook with half a trillion dollars of market cap sort of still thinking of itself as part of the counterculture is just kind of amazing. And it also speaks to the fact that the Valley has been in a bit of a bubble, you know, over the last 20 years. The rest of the world has moved on. But the ways in which technologists, at least in Silicon Valley, think about their industry, their technologies, what has become of them, the ways they've reshaped the world, it's still very, very siloed. You mentioned Zuckerberg's testimony. One of the things I really took from that is with 50 Congress people questioning him, the scope and the diversity of the harms that they raised across the political spectrum was was just kind of breathtaking, right? I mean, the and signaled, I think, just the number of spaces of our lives and our economies that that company is present in, right? Mm. And do you think we're almost on, on the on the yeah. harm side, which you detail so well in the book? Do you think we're almost yeah. getting lost in the scale and complexity of those harms? There's just so many we can't really wrap our heads around the impacts. It's a great point, and one of the things my book tries to do is to connect the economic, the political, and the social ramifications. I don't think that Washington or regulators in general have come to grips not only with all of those, but the way in which they interconnect. I think Europe has a little better grip on it. But in the U.S., you have a lot of regulators, a lot of politicians that care about this, but they care about it for different reasons. You know, so some people on both the far left and the far right care a lot about monopoly power. Some folks on the right care about issues of censorship because they're concerned that Silicon Valley is democratic and they're somehow going to get shut out of the political debate. There are folks, you know, more in the middle that care about the social issues. What's this doing to our kids' brains? There are defense hawks that care about the innovation ecosystem and the effects of companies like Google and Facebook on that. There are others that care about, hey, are we going to allow these companies to do business in China and the U.S.? So, There's just a huge scope of issues. And one of the things I recommend in the solutions section of my book, not not to jump ahead, but it's sort of apropos of this conversation, is that we need to get the smartest people in the room on a task force to look very soon, you know, over the next year, 18 months, two years, to really tease out not only all the issues, but the interconnections between those issues. Because if you start trying to regulate piecemeal, you're going to end up with a paradigm that's very similar to what's happened in the financial industry post-2008, where you had Dodd-Frank, a lot of rules being written by eight different regulatory bodies. You end up with this sort of spaghetti bowl that 
we know we needed more regulation, but it's then easy for uh, the financial industry to push back and say, hey, this is ridiculous. This or that rule is having this unintended consequence. So we've got to get it right this time. This is this is too big a deal to get wrong. So you, you mentioned the cognitive, economic, and political impacts. What, let's unpack each of those individually, if we can, for, for a second so that yeah. our, our listeners can understand what we're talking about. On the cognitive side, you know, I, I have a now five-year-old son, and I know that if I take that iPad away from him, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of pain for me mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and apparently mm-hmm. for him as well. <laughs> 100%. What, what are some of the cognitive dangers, and, and Tristan may have mentioned some of these as well, but what are some of the cognitive risks that, that we're now seeing? Yeah, so absolutely. There's a growing body of work that's being done by educators, uh, behavioral psychologists, looking at the ways in which things like gaming or social media or just online usage in general affect our brains, and in particular children's brains, which are more malleable. So you know this, having a five-year-old. You know, just anecdotally, I, I am sure you're familiar. You go to any restaurant today, and you see that iPad being used as a as a babysitter. And listen, I am guilty of this myself. Um, at the end of a long day, after the family family dinner. I'm sometimes inclined to let my son just kind of go upstairs with his phone, and I don't want to ask any questions because I'm getting peace and quiet. But research shows that, let's take social media, for example, and its effect on kids and adolescents. It's a bit like the effect of a glass of wine on an adult. So you don't want to have a kid that has absolutely no exposure to these technologies. I mean, that would that would simply put you outside of the real world at this stage, you know. And you you um, you need to have social contact with peers in this way. Every child is online, and in, in some respects, and in fact, Google in the New York City public schools is. I mean, you you can't go to school without using Google interfaces, um, but. It's in the same way that one glass of red wine, let's say, may be good for you, but then you have two, three, four, and the the negative externalities start to kick in. It's like that with social media usage. So there's some strong research showing that as children and teens have been more exposed to these technologies, levels of depression have increased, levels of anxiety have increased, self-harm in girls. And it's easy to understand why, right? I mean, you enter this world in which everyone is putting forward this shiny, perfect, Instagram-ready vision of themselves. And it's it's really difficult to exist in that bubble. You know, I was at an event recently, a conference in which these issues were being discussed. And a teenager came up to me and said, you know, I feel weird because it was my dad's birthday the other day, and I just really wanted it to be a private moment. I wanted to celebrate his birthday with him, but I didn't know if I don't post this on Facebook, is it real? It, you know, a- am I actually having this experience? And I think that that blending of real, unreal, external, internal is it's huge. It's having huge impacts. And we're just at the very beginning of it. And I'll just say one more thing. Um, Sherry Turkle, who I'm sure you all know, uh, who's been a, a longtime critic of technology and, and its effect on the brain, has made the point recently that too much use of your cell phone in general decreases empathy. You know, there are studies that show just if I were sitting here conversing with you and I put my phone on the table it would decrease levels of empathy for both of us because it's no longer a connection between two human beings. There's something in between. Yeah, I mean, I like how you frame that as a, as this human experience changing. And I give a lot of talks on this broad topic. And one of the things I find striking 
almost always is when there's either teenagers or undergraduates particularly, you almost always hear this sort of almost existential angst about the way they're using technology <laughs> and how it's yeah. shaping their reality, like you said, their view of reality, their social interactions with their friends. And I wonder if there's just a disconnect between how they're thinking about it as this all-encompassing challenge and then the way tech companies are kind of starting to give us figures on usage numbers and times. And they just feel like we're in two different spheres here. Well, that's that's an interesting question. That gets to something quite deep, which is the extent to which the technology companies and the people in the C-suite there really understand the negative implications. I would argue that they understand a lot more than they've been letting on. I mean, you can um, look at things like a couple of years ago, the famous example of Facebook being able to gauge uh, levels of depression or even to create or predict levels of depression in Australian teenagers, um, I believe it was teenage girls, and that that information could potentially be sold to, say, a pharmaceutical company that might want to, at points when a teenager is feeling depressed, say, run an ad for uh, an antidepressive drug. You know, I mean, these kinds of things happen all the time. That's what surveillance capitalism is. That's a you know a term that was coined by Shoshana Zuboff, who really believes that this is a fundamentally different kind of capitalism and a worrisome one. And we can dive more into that if you'd like. Well, we'll come back to some of the Shoshana stuff. We'll definitely dive into that. But before, I, I just want to jump back to the economics. So the next phase in this is the economic piece. Yeah. I, I don't think I can get away with not asking you about we work. <laughs> I know when we think about big tech and we think about the innovation economy, we, we naturally have gravitated towards Silicon Valley and Facebook and Google. But now we have we have Saudi Arabia and its its sovereign wealth fund. We have SoftBank and we have this distortion of capital that seems to be happening mm. in the valley as a result. And I'm wondering if, if you can talk a little bit about how you see as an economic uh, columnist, how you see the shift in capital over the last decade or so? Yeah, it's such a good question. Um, in fact, one of the chapters in my book, I go back to 1999 when I actually briefly worked in a high-tech incubator as a venture capitalist scouting, if you can believe it, B2C pan-European media deals, <laughs> which <laughs> decoded into English means I was looking for media businesses that could be brought to scale across Europe that would produce content for consumers and, and make their money mainly through advertising. Advertising. So I did that for uh, a year before just kind of becoming incredibly discouraged about how much we were selling something that really wasn't anything. Um, and we can come back to that. But the frothiness of the market today reminds me very, very much of the dot-com bubble era. But it's bigger because the context is, you know, it, there's just so much money sloshing around the markets right now. So just a little bit of history. You go back to the fi great financial crisis in 20. Um, 2008. And you had central banks coming in, dumping a lot of money into the global economy, pushing interest rates down. Those two things encourage the buildup of debt. And one of the areas that debt has really taken off is in the tech and media sector. And in part, this amount of easy money, these giant venture capital funds like SoftBank, which you mentioned, which is you know one of the companies that helped create the bubble that is WeWork, which is now collapsing and bringing down property prices in New York and London with it. That money allowed 
a number of unicorns, you know, those high valuation tech startups to grow to these really unprecedented sizes before they even go public. So if you think about what that means, that means that you have a huge amount of money going into this bubble economy where there's very little transparency financially, you know, before a company goes public. It also supports a business model that is essentially about making a land grab. So if you think about how some of the biggest tech platform companies work, it's all about growth rather than profits. Look at Uber, for example. You know, Uber goes out into every possible market, breaks whatever regulation it can, grabs market share, doesn't worry about making money, is allowed to continue that business model with private investors just pumping it up, pumping it up, cash flows in. But then you get this company going public and finally, oops, you know, people want to actually see some profits and they're not coming. And so the stock starts to sink. Now, when you look at how technology companies in general now make up such a larger percent of the overall equity markets, you start to think, okay, we could be headed for another tech-led crash. And already you are seeing signs of that. In fact, I would not be surprised that between the taping and the airing of this podcast that we could see a major tech-led market correction in U.S. equities and possibly even in global equities. The thing that, that I find uh, unique about this, and, and maybe I'm wrong, is the, the role that institutional investors are, are playing in this. Yeah. Here in Canada Pension Plan, Omer's uh, teachers, these are big pension plans that are starting their own VC funds and setting up shop in, in, in Silicon Valley. And, and now we're dealing with people's pensions. You talk to you know, the asset managers and they would say, well, you know, it's a way for us to diversify. But uh, are, we, are we walking into a risky path? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, I go back to my own experience in tech in the late 90s, which made me very, very wary of the sector in general, but in any kind of private company uh, business model, you just don't know what's going on. Alternative investments are risky, but we've been globally, certainly in the U.S., but really globally in such an easy money environment for such a long time that risks have built up in the system and you get exactly what you're talking about. Teachers, pension funds investing in what are really quite speculative stocks in some ways. I mean, you know, just like in the 90s, everybody hypes tech. I mean, my own mother, who was a first grade teacher, was dabbling in biotech stocks back then, which was an experiment that actually ended up shaving about 30 percent off her retirement. Everybody thinks, oh, tech's the future. But, you know, go back to the auto industry, for example, you know, turn of the 19th, the last century. Yeah, we knew that cars were going to replace horses, but we didn't know which car company was going to be the big hit. That's why a lot of big investors, Warren Buffett, for example, are wary about tech stocks, because whilst the vectoral trends we can see, yes, the digital transformation is happening. Yes, this is our future. You don't really know who the winners and losers are going to be. And by the way, a lot of the valuations of these firms are predicated on two things. One, a very loose regulatory environment, which is absolutely going to change. And two, being extremely global and scalable and being able to cross borders very easily. And I think that's changing, too. I think that North America, the EU, and then China and some of the emerging markets are probably going to go different directions in structuring the rules for the digital economy. That's going to make it a lot harder for these companies to jump borders or regions, and that's going to in turn make it harder for them to grow, and that could depress valuations. We've had a, a lot of companies go public this year after that period of what seemed a, a lot of concern that companies were not going public. But 
as we've seen, not all of them have performed very well. Do you think we will see more companies stay private longer? Um, I, you know, it's funny. I, I would like to say no, because to me, the valuations are just so inflated as they are. But the truth is, yes. I mean, already in the last few weeks, you see big investors raising even more gigantic funds to continue to inflate the value of these companies. It's a bet on the idea that a handful of players are going to sort of be in a winner-take-all environment, and they're going to be the next Googles, the next Facebooks, the next Amazons. I'm just not convinced that that's the case. I think that there is a real disconnect still between market valuations and the reality, the political reality on the ground in Washington and Brussels. I think that companies and investors really haven't landed on the fact that the trade environment is changing and that will continue even beyond 2020 or whenever, fingers crossed, President Trump is is out of office. You know, this is not just a Trump-driven trade war. We are in a new big tech trade environment that I think is going to be fundamentally more regional and more fragmented. You mentioned a, fin- um, a potential tech-driven market downturn, mm-hmm. similar to what we've seen before. But is another analogy a broader financial crisis in that an unregulated sector of the economy with financial incentives against reforming the negative externalities mm. sort of run amok? And if that's the case, and if sort of you say in the book that the, yeah. the, the, Wall, the 2008 financial crisis led in some ways to this populist backlash that led to Trump, mm-hmm. what's, the, what's the backlash to a tech-driven downturn look like? Well, it's really interesting. I mean, I do think if it was if 2008 bred Occupy Wall Street, I do think that the current moment is going to breed Occupy Silicon Valley because, you know, you talk about a financial crisis. I think it's very possible we could see this huge tech-driven debt bubble popping. Now, that would be different in nature from, say, the toppling of a Lehman Brothers and a systemic banking crisis. But the way I think about it is that The big tech companies have been the largest beneficiaries of what I call financialization, which is a topic I covered in my last book, Makers and Takers. And that's the way in which financial engineering has been used by companies and uh, countries to essentially create artificial growth. So a good example of that would be the 2017 Trump tax cuts, which, you know, we were told, oh, all these companies, if we just make taxes lower, they're going to bring back uh, the $2 trillion that they've offshored and overseas these bank accounts and they're going to invest it in Main Street businesses and you know jobs are going to be created and people are going to get wealthier, Yahoo. Well, what happened was to the extent that money did come back, it went straight into share buybacks, which is when a company comes in and you know buys up their share on the open market. And it's kind of an artificial way of pushing up stock prices in the absence of, of any kind of real underlying growth story or investment story. And the biggest beneficiaries of that, the folks that did the most buybacks and benefited most from the Trump tax cuts were the big tech companies, Apple, Google, others, Cisco, Oracle, you know, some of the um, hardware companies too. So these companies are It's funny. They have more engagement with the financial markets at a time when most of them haven't needed money for actually to raise money on the financial markets, um, you know, for operating expenses since the 1990s. So it's this really Kafkaesque system where 
these supposed innovators, which, you know, many of their innovations were years ago, um, and they've become really monopolists um, or utilities that should be regulated as such, they are pushing up asset prices, but not really creating a lot of innovation at the ground level. And so that in itself is creating the wealth disconnect, which a lot of economists feel is the real underlying problem with growth globally. So I want to touch briefly on the political sphere that you talk about, too, when you detail out these harms. And Mm. I mean, this is something that was clearly poignantly demonstrated in 2016, in Brexit, and a host of elections since. We actually just had an election in Canada. I was actually part of a big research project trying to monitor foreign interference and disinformation (laughs) in the election. And we actually thought we were going to see similar things to what we saw in these previous elections. And we didn't really. We didn't see this kind of Mm. acute foreign intervention by foreign governments or real manipulation of disinformation domestically. Mm -hmm. But what we did see really clearly was a deep, deep fragmentation of the political discourse. Yeah. So we saw conservatives literally only talking to conservatives online, sharing the same information, following the same people, Mm. um, supporting the same candidates. And we ended up with this election result that was kind of paralleled that fragmentation, right? Where Canada feels more divided yeah. than it has been in a long time, along very similar lines as the online discourse. Yeah. And I'm wondering if when you look at the political implications of this infrastructure, is the medium part of why we're seeing this political fragmentation? Oh, 100 percent, 100 percent. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of studies that you can point to um, looking at how the rise in social media has decline, has coincided with a decline in trust in liberal democracy for the very reasons that you're talking about, because people become very fragmented, very siloed in their own sort of capture bubbles where they're talking to only like-minded people. That's creating not only more extreme views, but interestingly, a perception of more extreme views from each side. So if I'm a Democrat, I actually view Republicans now as being more extreme even than they might be and vice versa. So um, it's, again, it's a real rabbit hole. And one of the things that worries me a lot and I think about a lot is just the business model of traditional media. Uh, Like at the FT, I have to check my facts. I'll be fired or, or sued if things are wrong. But the only way that the FT has been able to survive in this increasingly commoditized world in which Facebook and Google now take the vast majority of the entire advertising pie for print media, and they're about to disintermediate television as well, the only way we can survive is by having a pretty high-priced subscription model. But that then also contributes to the bifurcation because you have to be pretty rich to read the FT or, you know, in a library, in a college somewhere, if you're lucky to have, a, you know, if they have a subscription. Whereas a lot of what's free is the cheap stuff, the fake news, which, by the way, there was an MIT study recently showing that fake news on Twitter was six times as likely to be shared as as real news. So I think we have got to find some ways to create some sense of liability for these companies. Now, there's a big debate, as I'm sure you're aware, in the U.S. right now about um, a legal loophole that was carved out in 1996 as part of the Communications Decency Act, which gave online platforms uh, exemption from anything that people say or do. And that you know, was possibly, uh, possibly appropriate at the time because these companies were kind of startups in garages. 
But I really question at this stage whether you can have a no liability for a company like Facebook in, in which violence, extremism, pornography is, is being monetized and is just out of control. Even if they've got 35,000 people working as censors, they can't keep up with it. And it, I think that it really raises a question, just one final point, I think it really raises a question of whether a company like Facebook can actually coexist with liberal democracy, whether people have free will, as John Stuart Mill you know, might, have, might have put it. Yeah, and, that, and those um, intermediary liability protections are built increasingly built into trade agreements. Indeed. So, and this um, the new NAFTA yes. has that built in. So yes. I'm not sure Canadians can even create a system of liability and impose it. Absolutely. And this goes to the political power of this industry. Silicon Valley is now the single largest lobbying entity in Washington. Google had more meetings with the last president than any other company. Amazon lobbies on more issues than any other company. There is such capture. And you know, one of the things, I'm sure you may have found this as well in your own reporting, but as I was reporting this book, I found it very, very difficult to find completely neutral experts to speak to because so much of the academic community, technologists, business school professors, legal professors that study and talk about the issues in question are actually paid consultants by one side or another, be it Google or Qualcomm or Apple. It's really, really hard to find independent voices in this debate. I've never seen this much regulatory capture, even by the financial industry or the energy industry. So that leads naturally to the U.S. election and some of the candidates on the Democratic side at the moment, particularly Elizabeth Warren, calling for the breakup of big tech. Do you think these companies should be broken up? So when Liz Warren says break up big tech, I think that that's a shorthand for regulate big tech. Um, She's come under fire because a lot of people can argue and you can argue that if you break up Google or Facebook into pieces, it doesn't necessarily solve all the problems. I am increasingly thinking that a utility type model is a good first step. There's a, a legal scholar in the U.S., Lena Kahn, who's now sitting on the House Antitrust Committee, and she wrote a paper. She's written a couple of very seminal papers, one looking at Amazon and comparing it to the railroads of old and looking at how these networks, they can own an entire network and yet also compete within the network. And so that gives them a sort of a just a natural um, monopolistic position. And I think that that makes a lot of sense to me. As I've spoken to companies both small and and big, it's impossible for them to have an equal playing field when the network provider has so much more information than they do. And that kind of brings me back to this bigger question of how how these companies fit into a functioning free market system. I mean, if you go back to Adam Smith, the father of modern capitalism, he would have said that you needed equal access to information, uh, a symmetric transaction on both sides of a, of a market system, and a kind of a shared moral framework for capitalism to work. I don't think any of those things are in effect when you think about, say, Google's targeted advertising model and and how much more information Google has than its customers or its users, or Amazon and the way in which it can preference its own products um, online without anybody really even understanding what's happening because of the algorithmic black box. I thought it was interesting, David Marcus, the head of Libra, mm. digital mm-hmm. currency that Facebook is is a part of creating, framed it in very binary terms, geopolitical terms, saying, you know, if, if, if you don't, basically, if you don't let us 
do this, China will win. Uh, I find that so disingenuous. I, I mean, I, it's funny. I'm actually in the midst of writing a column railing against that very point of view because, uh, frankly, these companies are dying to be in China. I mean, the only reason Facebook isn't in China is because the Chinese are actually ring-fencing their own um, digital economy and, and creating more limitations about um, Western companies going in. I find it fascinating. <laughs> the the line that various companies take is uh, on China is very much in sync with their own interests. So for a long time, until there was incredible political pressure, you saw Google pushing to be in China in a deeper way. And then regulators began asking questions, all right, if you're going to be helping with government security and defense programs, if you're going to be doing AI, should you also be working with the Chinese when there's absolutely no assumption of privacy and this is a state-run economy? All right, let's think about that. On the other hand, you have companies like Amazon. Amazon's completely cut out of China because um, Alibaba, its competitor, Chinese competitor, has a hold on that market. So Amazon is trying to ring fence U.S. government procurement and kind of playing this little bit of a, a nationalist card, which is so ironic given that Jeff Bezos and Donald Trump really don't seem to be collaborators. It's the the whole U.S. China nationalism, big tech don't regulate us because we need to compete in the war against China is, I think, incredibly disingenuous and cynical for multinational companies that have been all about crossing borders for their entire existence. Yeah, I mean, the the idea that there's a binary between free speech or Chinese control of the American discourse is a a bit of a false from him. You know, there's also the question of the larger innovation ecosystem. I mean, I've, I've argued that Nobody's going to out China, China. You know, if you're trying to win in centralized planning, guess what? You're not going to win. But I think that what the U.S. can do and what other rich liberal democracies can do is have a more robust free market system. I mean, one of the things I look at in my book is how a lot of small and mid-sized companies, they can't even compete. Their entire black zones around big areas of innovation, biotech, certain kinds of data analytics, you know, AI, areas that Google or Facebook or Amazon would be in. Nobody can go into those areas except to create companies that are essentially talent farms that will then be bought. So again, it's this winner-take-all environment. And if we want free market capitalism to work, we're probably going to need to regulate these companies. At the same time, though, there there are geopolitics playing out here. Uh, 100%. I mean, GDPR, in many ways, is a European economic border, right? Or a wall of some sort. <laughs> right. um, and there's, there's some yeah. commercial geopolitics going on there. And Chinese tech expansionism is a, is a pretty powerful force, particularly in liberal markets, right? Is it inevitable that the U.S. sort of... Um, promotes regulated monopolies in response to that? I hope not. I What I would hope is that the U.S. comes up with a set of digital values of what it would like the digital economy, which, by the way, this is an industrial revolution type change, what it would like that economy to look like, uh, how how the rules can serve all stakeholders, not just make the big bigger, because that's a losing game. I mean, these companies, if you look at them as even taken not just one by one, but if you look at the whole high tech sector, it creates far fewer jobs relative to market cap, even than the previous generation of tech companies like, say, a Microsoft or an IBM, and certainly fewer than the previous generation of industrials. So if it's all about just enriching four companies, that's not a way to run a large economy. 
uh, here in Canada, in Toronto in particular, there's the Alphabet Sidewalk Labs Mm -hmm. project uh, that has uh, gotten a lot of attention. We've reported on it extensively. And it really has become a fascinating choice or paradox for people in this community to decide on which side of the fence they're on. And the general framing that you hear from those that are very pro-sidewalk is for Canada to succeed as a small entity on the world stage, we need to embrace innovation and we need to embrace the foreign direct investment that we get from a company like Alphabet, Google, uh, choosing to set up shop in Canada. And then if we don't let that happen, Canada will be viewed as a backwater by the rest of the world. And I'm, I'm curious what you would tell those supporters of Sidewalk Labs. Wow. I just think that that's such a wrong-headed way of thinking about things. I mean, one of the things that Canada has really going for it is the quality of its human capital. One of the reasons it has such high human capital is that it has a functioning public sector that actually spends on things like education and healthcare. I don't see any need for uh, the government in Toronto, the government in Canada to give away what's being given away to a company like Google in the Sidewalk Project, all of this data in this incredibly asymmetric transaction. This is exactly what the the, the stunt that Amazon pulled when it held its um, sort of bake-off, city bake-off for its um, HQ2 in the U.S., where it tells all these cities, okay, if you're lucky enough, we're going to, we're going to, uh, and you give us enough subsidies and you let us see all your data and all this value, we might put our headquarters in your city. Oh, and by the way, we will then jack up housing prices because that's what happens when Amazon's in your city. We're going to need you to support infrastructure. It's all part of this complete imbalance between what the private sector is giving and getting. And if there's anything the last 40 or 50 years have shown us, it's that the balance of power has swung so wildly towards the the private sector. That's why we're having this backlash against globalization. That's why we're having the populism that we're seeing. This is a time for governments to be saying, hey, you know what? We have all this citizen data. Let's, Let's not call it consumer data. Let's say this is the data of our citizens. We will protect it. They will own it. We might hold it in, say, public data banks, which then, depending on what X private company is offering, they might get access to. But the idea that a private company can come in and set the rules themselves, I just think that that's completely wrongheaded. And I think it's going to, you're going to end up, and I hope this doesn't happen, that Canada ends up in the kind of race to the bottom that you've seen particularly in some Southern American states where it's all about what tax subsidies, uh, what resources can we give to a private company? You get headline, good headline job figures you know, for five years, and then you get a net decline in economic growth because you've given away all the investment money in the public coffers. I think we could talk for hours about all the, um, the challenges. And I, and I guess just to close... I'm wondering what institutions or or who you have faith in Mm. that will help us through this period. Mm. Who are you looking to 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 solve some of these challenges? Well, it's interesting. 
just as some of the most articulate critics post-2008 came from the financial sector themselves, you know, people like Gary Gensler, who used to run the CFTC, was a Goldman Sachs banker. I think that some of the most productive and articulate critics are coming from the tech industry. You know, you look at someone like Tristan Harris, which we've already talked about. Jerome Lanier, um, the kind of father of AI, has been incredibly articulate about the need for individuals to capture the value of their own data. He's one of the folks that's working on the plans for a digital dividend in California, which could even turn into a kind of a sovereign wealth fund of data. Tim Berners-Lee, um, one of the fathers of the World Wide Web um, in the UK, another another great voice, Roger McNamee, one of the seed investors in, in Facebook and Google. So I think that within the industry, there are voices that are becoming more powerful, and these people are testifying in Congress, and they're helping individuals to understand what's happening. And um, as a financial journalist and economic journalist and somebody that comes at this not from the tech industry myself, but with a little bit of a broader perspective, I hope that I can play some small part with my own book in that um, changing of the narrative. The book is called Don't Be Evil. And you know, I think you've left it on a, on a nice tone here for people who aren't being evil and who are trying to <laughs> um, advance this conversation. Rana Faruhar, thank you so much for, for joining us and for having this conversation. And, and congratulations and best of luck as you embark on this book tour. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You know, Taylor, it's interesting. Rana's journey of discovery and how she explored these tech companies is something that I think a lot of people have have wrestled with over the last few years. Yeah, I certainly feel I have. I mean, I think a lot of people who were both either watching and studying and reporting on these companies or just living through the daily news on how their role has changed has been through a similar evolution. And it's... Uh, pretty enlightening to hear someone um, write about that transition um, that she went through herself. That's it for now. I'm David Scott, founder and editor-in-chief at The Logic. And I'm Taylor Owen, a senior fellow at CG and professor at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. And if you did, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts, and we'll have more episodes coming soon. Bye for now. The Big Tech Podcast is a partnership between the Center for International Governance Innovation, CG, and The Logic. CG is a Canadian nonpartisan think tank focused on international governance, economy, and law. The Logic is an award-winning digital publication reporting on the innovation economy. Big Tech is produced and edited by Trevor Hunsberger, and Kate Rosewell is our story producer. Visit BigTechPodcast.com for more information about the show. Thank you.